Welcome back to another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Allie. And this is Jason. This week we'll be talking to our esteemed surgical clerkship director, Dr. Paul Montero, on some tips and tricks on how to succeed in your third year surgery rotation. And Jason, anything fun that you've done this week that you want to share with our listeners? Well, it was a bit of a reprieve for the podcast. It's been a few weeks since we put an episode out. We appreciate everyone's patience. Uh, Let's see, last weekend we celebrated my birthday. I'm not going to say how old I am. Very old. We went up to Vail for the weekend, uh, which is something that we get to enjoy living in Colorado. Uh, However, I'm not a big skier, so what we did instead was cross-country ski, which is way easier, also way more exhausting, and we went fat tire biking. uh, In the snow, right? In the snow, which for people who don't know what a fat tire bike is, I guess it's kind of self-explanatory, but these are enormously large wheels that are designed to float over the snow. They don't really, and so it's very tiring. Both were still... Very fun. Had a great time. And, of course, to round out the Colorado week when we visited a local brewery while we were up there, which was also fun. Excellent. I also went skiing this week. Uh, Normal skiing, not cross-country skiing. I'm not in as good a shape as Jason is, as you guys can tell by my voice. So, anyway, just to get right into the thick of it, talking to our clerkship director this week, Dr. Montero, we actually got some excellent questions from you medical students who listen to us. So we thank you very much for those questions and we will do our best to answer them today. Remember, if you have other questions related to this episode or any other topic, you can email us at rmspodcast at outlook.com or follow us on Twitter at rmspod. Jason, before we get into the interview with Dr. Montero, any thoughts about your surgical clerkship or words of wisdom that you have for our listeners? So I talked a little bit about this in our interview with Dr. Montero, but when I went into the surgical clerkship, previously I told people before medical school and going into medical school that I did not want to do surgery. It was the one thing I knew I didn't want to do. Granted, I think that was based off misconceptions about what the career is. TV shows. I'm not going to answer that. (laughs) Uh, and so that's, well, I, to honestly answer your question, I thought that I didn't have the manual dexterity for surgery. I thought this was some kind of very precise technical career thinking. I'm trying to think of an example outside medicine, but nothing's coming to mind. Video games? Sure. I didn't play a lot of video games growing up, so sure. And then when I came to the clerkship, for one, I realized after some discussions with some mentors that I developed during medical school that the technical skills are, the, are what you learn during residency. Uh, it's more about whether you have a passion for the patients and the patient problems. That's what ultimately determines whether surgery is right for you. Uh, you know, I certainly remember like my first trauma call and that first time that I saw a thoracotomy and things like that. You'll always remember those first few experiences where it's a very different and jarring experience from anything you've had previously. But just coming to the realization that I enjoyed surgery and that that was a career for me, it was kind of a... It's a, it's a moment I also won't ever forget. Just finding that true calling is, is very special. What about you, Allie? You know, I set up my third year rotations so I would have surgery second to last because I didn't think that I wanted to be a general surgeon. And I changed my mind at the end of the year. I thought I wanted to be an OBGYN before my third year. And then throughout my surgical clerkship, We did things similar to how they do it here. You have a general surgery rotation for a majority of it. So it's like it was four weeks for me where I did surgical oncology, but there were general surgery type rotations. So people did colorectal or trauma or something of that nature for four weeks. And then you had two weeks each of two subspecialty rotations. So you did either 
plastics or neurosurgery or urology or burn surgery. So I did urology and burn surgery. And honestly, I had so much fun and learned so much on that full eight weeks where I was doing urology and big cancer operations for that, both open and laparoscopic and robotic, and then general surgical oncology and taking care of those patients to something so different as burn surgery and doing burn surgeries and the critical care that's associated with burn care. And I liked all of that, and I was just sold. And I think that one of the things that we'll talk about with Dr. Montero and that you've heard a lot of people say is that the people who are on the rotations with you make a big difference. I was definitely taken under the wing of some excellent chief residents, um, surgery chief residents, who I admired and taught me and I respected, and I learned so much from them during those rotations. And they came to me and said, you know, we can tell that you love this and you're good at this. Are you interested in doing surgery? And I was like, well, actually, I am now. And I didn't make up my mind until like maybe a week or two after the surgical clerkship. And I was like, "Mm, okay, I'm done fighting with myself about this enough. I actually do want to do that. So I think that if you're interested in it at all, or even if you're not interested in it at all, or you think you're not, you have to give every rotation that you do on your third year um, a chance. And you have to like be on your A game throughout all of it, because it actually may end up being what you want to do. And you never anticipated that because you don't know. You've never done this before. You have no idea. And keep in mind, and this is probably the the hard part about making the decision, is that what you do as a medical student is not the same as what you do as a resident, which is not the same as what you do ultimately as a practicing physician. So try and be sneaky and get an eye into what each of those lives are like on your different rotations. That's good advice, Jason. All right. So with that all being said, let's jump into our interview with Dr. Montero. back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We are delighted to have Dr. Paul Montero with us today, who's the director of the surgical clerkship for the third and fourth year medical students here at the University of Colorado. Jason, would you like to give him an introduction? Sure. So Dr. Montero went to undergraduate at the University of Virginia. He then went to medical school at the Eastern Virginia Medical School, and he completed his residency here at the University of Colorado. And following that, he went and did a minimally invasive surgery fellowship at Carolinas Medical Center. Dr. Montero, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Montero, to start, this being the episode of the surgical clerkship experience, can you tell us what your journey was to surgery and whether the surgical clerkship experience uh, played a role in that? Uh, sure. It wasn't perhaps as much of a role for me. Uh, so, my, my dad's a retired surgeon, and uh, the, the exposure to surgery and the interest was always there. Uh, when I was 15, he brought me on a medical mission to the Philippines. I was delighted to know that I, I could stomach blood and guts without getting queasy, and I thought it was really neat. You can help people, really, of any background, not even knowing their language. Hmm. The anatomy is the same. We humans are the same. And many of the maladies we face are the same. I will tell you that I really enjoyed every clerkship, and so it, it made the decision still sort of difficult. And for me, being the youngest of four, I'm kind of like a big kid, uh, and so I, I had an appeal towards pediatrics, for that reason, and a bit of a, a bit of an apprehension about the, the stereotype of, of what surgery is like. I guess to summarize, I, I made the leap telling myself, like, look, you've, you've been spoiled with opportunity. You grew up with a silver spoon, in, in a sense, so go 
go join the monastery and work your butt off and stop having fun and get through it, and then you can continue to do what you want to do, which is help people. Much to my delight, I realize that it's, it's much more fun and a lot less arduous than, than one would think with the eight-hour work week, which started when I was an intern, and really all the friends I've made and the work hard, play hard mentality, uh, it's been nothing but great. Going back to either that trip that you took with your dad when you were 15 or specifically your clerkship when you were a third-year medical student, are there any experiences that you had or any fears you had going into it that were true or not true or any experiences that kind of helped you make your decision to become a surgeon? Well, there's a lot of memorable experiences and a lot of times uh, I reflect on them and, and I see it happening with, with my own students. Um, but, you know, there, there's things that come to mind. I remember as, as a third year, I, I knocked over one of the chest tube collection chambers onto the intern's brand new white shoes. <laughs> he was none too pleased. One of the other residents said, don't worry about it. That knucklehead probably shouldn't have worn white shoes in the trauma bay anyway. And I felt a little better about it at a very embarrassing event. I'm trying to sit there and demonstrate my dexterity and my situational awareness. Uh, gosh, I remember a young guy in a motorcycle crash uh, with a traumatic amputation and I was holding his foot with like a Doc Martin boot on it and thought, well, this is kind of weird. A leg's kind of heavy all by itself. Uh, that made me never want to get on a motorcycle. <laughs> uh, I remember circling back and just out of my own interest talking to a patient who was admitted with really bad mesh complications, not knowing that that would be the field, the very field I go into and just kind of appreciating how impactful that was. This is a seventh surgery. He's had chronic pus draining from his belly. So that really reinforced that there's an there's absolute need for, for surgeons, surgeon talent for such complexities. I, I witnessed a terrible surgical error. Uh, I saw a stable get, stapler get fired across the stomach for a gastric bypass with the NG tube not removed. And I, I watched uh, the maturity of how they handled it as well as the importance of a checklist that was discussed at the subsequent M&M. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I guess one thing that I see myself dealing with too I remember there was a thoracic surgeon well-loved by his patients and by uh, trainees, and his clinic was constantly running behind by uh, as much as two hours by the end of it, and he didn't seem to care whatsoever. Basically said, I spent as much time as I need with each patient, and that is exactly what happens in my clinic now. Uh, there's just not enough time in the pre-allotted slots to uh, get through the complexities of complex abdominal wall stuff, so I'm, I'm constantly behind, but when I explain that, I've yet to have a patient say, well, you're terrible because you're slow. So those are things that I, I can reflect upon and remember, and, and they're so applicable now. Hmm. What about you, Jason? Do you have any specific memories from your third-year clerkship that still are close in your mind now? So we had a couple of interesting uh, personalities in the attendings there. And one attending, his way of demonstrating his uh, approval of your job in the operating room was he would give you the glass cleaning, the camera cleaning cloth from the kit of the laparoscope or whatever. And that would, he would offer that as a gift and everyone knew except me, apparently that was a sign that you did well and you're supposed to take it as such. And he said, do you, are, are you interested in taking this? Do you have a need for this? And I said, no, I have plenty of <laughs> glass cleaners already. You know, I, I appreciate it, but no, I'm okay. Thank you. And I left, and people were just amazed that I had turned him down. <laughs> and I thought for sure my grade was just ruined from that moment. Of course it wasn't. But uh, it's kind of funny what you think matters during your surgical clerkship. In any of the medical school rotations, they get blown way out of proportion. It's not, it's not the case. 
Who knows if that's even a, just an urban legend or if he really does think that. <laughs> I won't say names or anything. It's funny. I grab those and keep them for myself. Uh, does that say something about me? I, I don't know why I didn't. I don't remember in the moment what I was thinking why I didn't want to take it. But Now, all three of us in the room, we trained at medical schools where there's residents around. And that's not true for every medical student, but probably a large majority. So... We've all had different experiences, both as the medical student and as the resident now, but what are some of the expectations that you have, Dr. Montero, here, and I'm sure this applies at most institutions, for residents when it comes to teaching medical students during their rotation? Well, I appreciate it. It's a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is, uh, of course, per LCME mandate, I, I want to make sure all the residents are aware of the goals and objectives of the course, as I'm sure you are. Oh, do tell us. It's just a few clicks away on the uh, webpage and under the syllabus. Uh, and, and it's nothing surprising, but I want you to make sure that all of our residents are aware of that, because that's what the LCME wants, and that's what I want. But, you know, I, I'd first say I, I want the resident to be respectful. I would argue that negligence is kind of a form of mistreatment. When you don't acknowledge or don't include your student because you're too overwhelmed or too busy or don't know what to do, that doesn't do them any favors. And you you got to remember where you came from. You, you were just a student, too, you know. I, I try to ask the incoming interns, you know, who here was just recently a medical student? <laughs> who here likes medical students? And then, you know, I'm going to hold that against them if they start to be that, that hater type uh, later, later in their, their residency career. You know, just share your passion with surgery and then share your knowledge. I distinctly remember as a senior resident at Denver Health, something clicked and I realized I suddenly had a lot I could share, whereas I was always a little unsure, a little nervous to try to teach because I'm still learning myself. Uh, and that made it fun. And when you when you do the right thing and you work hard, you're, you're actually teaching your students just from the modeling alone. Uh, but I think the golden rule applies. Just remember where you came from and, and treat them as, as that you wanted to be treated when you were a student. When you gain seniority, you have more knowledge to share, and I expect that you have a more active teaching role. Um, you're also going to find more and more comfort and confidence in sharing what you know. And I think you also have more ability to discuss things, including outside of the realm of uh, how do you tie a knot or, you know, what can go wrong with a lab Coley. You can talk about what it's like, what the challenge is, the, the psychosocial aspect, what your experience has been, because they're looking at you knowing that they might very well be in your shoes. And, and so I think sometimes that makes or break the decision to go into your field. Mm -hmm. And it's so serendipitous who was on their team. Mm -hmm. so, so being aware of all the above uh, and treating them like you wanted to be treated when you were a student is, is, is a key element, I think. One of the things I always say to the medical students when I talk to them is like, if you notice that somebody has been a good teacher to you or is pimping you or is going through different clinical scenarios with you or procedures, like they, people going out of their way to get you involved, they're like giving you something. Like it takes so much effort when you are an overworked, frazzled intern to actually take time out and go through a clinical scenario or whatever it is with a medical student. So I do think that as medical students, you guys have to understand and appreciate that somebody's actually doing that intentionally for you. They're giving you this gift of learning and attention. So to be appreciative of those opportunities, like I definitely had some excellent chief residents that I was fortunate to be on services with. And like you said, Dr. Montero, I think that your interactions, whether this is right or wrong, um, help you decide what fields you actually choose, maybe even more than the day-to-day. -day. A lot of it is the personality of the people that you work with for six to eight weeks on a clerkship, which seems kind of crazy to make your life decisions based on that. So for the medical students listening, my word of wisdom would be to really 
do everything you can to get those types of opportunities and appreciate them when you do get them and be ready for the clinical teaching and the procedural teaching, but then also for the residents to really understand that you're helping guide these people into your field. Now, for better or worse, everyone's focused on getting a good grade, ultimately. Mm. Grades are a little bit different at every medical school. True. Uh, but ultimately, it's while we're all, it's the reason we're all present to a point is so that we can then reach the next level of our training, which is getting a good residency. So from your perspective, maybe from the general overall administration perspective, what makes a good medical student when it comes to achieving a good grade? But then what makes a good medical student grades aside as well? Well, the uh, that's a good question. And it's hard to break it down into differences because I try to make them one and the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good med student is engaged. There's a spectrum of, of enthusiasm that you want to hit the right point on. The overly enthusiastic one can sometimes be a, a distraction. Uh, however, a, 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 a truly curious one who, who reads and then has really well thought questions is, is you know just the sweet spot. And the disinterested student who you know you, you may teach them one thing and you ask them the next day they don't remember. They're just they're not they're clearly not there because they don't want to do uh, what we do. It's just sort of hard to keep them engaged, and and honestly, there's a like begets like. I suppose I don't really know what the phrase is, but you know, enthusiasm begets enthusiasm too. If you're disinterested, you're not really gonna prompt us to try harder to get you interested. You're probably gonna get disinterest from us. Mm-hmm. It seems to be the case. But the, the level of, of studiousness, uh, if that's a word, you know, the curiosity and the intellect is something you can tell from the day to day interactions, the questions, and the level of, of uh, attention. I think, to me at least, the, 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 the human interaction quality of the student, um, are they respectful, are they professional, do they advocate for their patients, uh, do they communicate well, uh, do they have the right balance of being thorough but being succinct? Uh, the situational awareness, that's a learned attribute that many folks come with, especially students who maybe had a second career and then decided to go to med school later. And then... I often say this as feedback, but an astute student appreciates the patterns of care. There's there's patterns of everything, uh, whether that be uh, anticipating the next move in the OR. Every time you see a knot being tied, you should have the suture scissors in your hand and be ready uh, and anticipate what's next. Or even their routine roundsmanship, like what do we ask in the morning? Is your pain controlled? Did you have a bowel movement? Did you get up and walk? You know, take initiative. Follow the patterns yourself, and you stand out really well. Wow, this person gets it, and they have the initiative. I think that's what really helps the clinical assessment part of of the grade. We don't really grade technical skills whatsoever, even though most students appropriately want to learn them. Uh, It's not part of our grading, for better or for worse. I mean, many fields, you don't have to know how to tie a knot. Uh, So, you know, enjoy that, embrace that, but I think really the the human interaction, the, the studiousness, and the appreciation of surgical pathology is, is key. One thing I'd like to add on to what you just said is talking about students who may not be going into surgery, um, who want to get something out of their surgical rotation or generally just want to do well in medical school. Like I think that the surgery rotation in the third year is actually maybe even more important for those who aren't going into surgery because if you want to be a family practice doctor, and you need to know what an acute abdomen 
exam is like. Like you should soak all of this up for six weeks because it may be the last time that you're working one-on-one with surgeons, but we all interact with each other. So that kind of thing, like some of the best students that I've worked with, I can remember want to go into family practice or want to go into, you know, uh, medicine and pulmonary critical care, all of those things. So you don't have to be like a surgical gunner to ace your surgery clerkship. You just have to be interested and you have to do a good job taking care of your patients. And one of the things that I heard you said was like, reading and knowing your patients and advocating for your patients. The med students who I've seen do really well had gone and read everything about why their patient needed to have surgery before they were in the operating room. Like they understood if this is a cancer operation, what neoadjuvant treatment they had and what, not only reading about the anatomy, but also like what the indications were for the surgery. And I think that sometimes those questions are ones that you're going to get asked just as much as like, what does this vessel come from. You know what I mean? So just to expand a bit on our last question, could you name just a couple examples, specific examples on how medical students can be helpful on the surgical team, whether that's in the operating room or on the on the wards? Sure. Well, in the operating room, which is historically a, a potentially scary place, there's hierarchy, there's sometimes OCD nurses who don't want you anywhere near something sterile despite you being sterile. <laughs> it, it, it can be a, a detriment to learning if you don't have the right attitude or you don't have the tools my advice is, first of all, you know, you got to learn how to know what cases are coming up, and usually the residents will, will help you with that, how to look at the board and see what the cases are. So review the anatomy, whether that's a quick peek at netters uh, to know the pertinent vessels or the pertinent veins or nerves, or nowadays the technology really facilitates uh, the ability to watch a video. You can watch a five-minute highlight video of, of a gastric bypass, and it's going to help you so much. As a rule, you should know the patient well, their past surgical history, their, their medication, or their past medical history. Um, you should know the disease that you're operating for, what's the typical HPI, the pathophysiology, the treatment options, the classic HP findings. Not just because you might get pimped, but also because that's how you're going to absorb and it's really going to imprint in your head uh, those details, the diagnostic workup. Ideally, you're going to know the basic tenets of the surgery. What are the goals? What's the intent? And what are the major risks? And how would you even manage it if you, for instance, hit the common bile duct during a lap coli? I think it's nice to be able to reflect afterwards. That's a good exercise for everybody to do. There's even the, the debriefing timeout. But it's not so much ask a question for the sake of asking a question, but you're bound to have questions. If you don't, maybe you're not paying enough attention. And then for intraoperative questions and pimping, my advice is, situational awareness can really carry you far. The ideal timing to ask a question in the operating room is during routine stuff where our attention capacity is not being tested. We always make the incision the same way. We always put our ports in the same spots. When we're closing, we always do it the same way. But if there's blood splattering on the ceiling and it's audible, that's not a great time to ask, oh, doc, is is that the branch of the so-and-so? Because we're probably a little distracted. Um, And then, you know, in the OR... For hands-on stuff, I think practice the fundamentals, get some suture, use that rope trainer, uh, practice what you can, appreciate the fundamentals. You know, if you think we're a little too uptight about how you tie a knot, I, uh, I recommend you watch the TED Talk on how to tie your shoes the right way, and that'll help you appreciate that knot tying is important. Uh, you want to make the scrub tech and the scrub nurses your allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can make or break your experience to a degree. Yeah, so be respectful. If you're opening gloves, even though you know how to do it, make sure they're watching you because they want to watch you. They're supposed to. Pay attention to details. 
write your name on the board when you go in the OR. They're going to love you from the get-go if you do that because they have to document who's in the room. And introduce yourself. Yeah, introduce yourself. As uh, a medical student. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so write your name on the board and put MS3 or MS4 or what have you. Uh, I think instrument-wise, your tools are the suture scissors or the Yankauer suction catheter. You don't necessarily have to ask if you can have those. I'd say go ahead and grab them. And any retractor that gets put in your hands, uh, you know, be ready to, to use. But again, there's patterns to recognize. When do we leave long tails? When do we cut the tail short? It, it relates to the suture that we're using. Ask it first, recognize a pattern, and then do it the next time. And then it never hurts to ask if you can do tasks. they got to be reasonable, but, but stitching the drain sutures in, uh, open up the gallbladder on the back table, firing an unspent clip applier, those are all great things that that are really easy and, and mindless to do from, from our perspective, but fun for you because you've never done it before and there's no cost whatsoever. It's just a neat experience. So, you know, it's okay to ask if you can do certain things, but it, we may not let you sew on the aorta, but, but there's plenty to do. Also, another tip that I have is like at the end of the case, especially if you have unused materials, like unused suture, unused ties, take those and talk with the scrub tech or the circulating nurse about it beforehand. And they are like so excited to give you unused supplies. And honestly, the rope tie is great for understanding the technique, but when you're actually practicing tying knots at home, if you can put on gloves, so steal a couple extra pairs of gloves and then tie it with actual suture, that is different than tying a big old rope. Two pairs of gloves. Put on two pairs. Yeah. Yeah. Double glove. Uh, I tell you, a, a nice, easy task to do. You don't need a trainer for it. You take a can of your favorite beverage. Mm. You put it on a white piece of paper and trace the circle at the base of the can. You pop the tab up at a 90 degree, and through the hole in the tab, you start tying knots. And as you continually slip your be- sip your beverage, uh, it'll get lighter and lighter, and your goal is to tie the knot without moving it off. And by the time it's nearly empty or empty... It becomes a challenging task, but it's a good exercise to do. And you can do it while you're watching the Broncos on TV or the Oscars, which were this past weekend, or whatever. You, you, can, you can do it while you're doing other things. That's good. I'm going to have to start doing that before I go back to clinical rotations. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about letters of recommendation. I'm sure you're involved in composing these or helping students identify letter writers. When is a good time for students to ask for letters and how do they identify who are good people to, to ask to uh, advocate on their behalf? You know, it's tricky. It's one of many factors that make you a, a competitive candidate. I don't think it's the most important by any means. And, and part of it is who you know, not what you know. Um, obviously, the chair, uh, the nationally known faculty of your department, uh, those letters carry a lot more weight because the, the reader of the letter is going to know who it is. And sometimes not having a letter from the more prominent surgeons in your f- facility can be a detriment because, uh, oh, how come Bob didn't write your letter? I know Bob really well. I don't, I'm not, I'm, that's a hypothetical Bob. Um, the timing, you know, as soon as feasible, so they remember you the most. Mm-hmm. So during or really at the end of the rotation or just after its completion is an ideal time. And you may want to consider a summary email. This goes for your clerkship too, but it's, it's not wrong ever to, to send an email to your evaluator or your potential letter writer highlighting, you know, you, you watch me do this, you give me feedback on that, these are the cases we did together. Some people might think it's a little bit brown nosy, but it's actually a fantastic way to summarize and, and kind of jar our memory. And honestly, subconsciously, it just makes you look like a, an initiative taker, a go-getter, and it it's only reflects positively on you and it makes our job easier. Hmm, That's also a good tip. Um, Questions for you about pimping. So I think that 
this is not unique to surgery. It definitely happens on medicine rounds too, but you hear a lot about it going into your third year clerkships. And I think that people are always nervous. Oh, well, I'm going to get pimped about this, or I'm really nervous. What is pimping, especially for the younger medical students or people who aren't even in medical school yet who are listening? And where do you see it happening? Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? How do you use it in your practice? Well, it could be good or bad depending on how you go about it. But pimping, if you will, is really just just the practice of asking questions and, and probing knowledge and, and trying to uh, determine what does a student know and what do they what do they need to study. Um, I, I think it goes back to the the age of Socrates. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, pupil-teacher interactions. But you know, there's good pimping and bad pimping, and the examples of bad pimping are asking you know, un- unimportant trivia for the sake of it, like, you know, do you know what instrument and, and who invented it? Like, who cares, really? No offense to our, our forefathers who did invent it, but that's not something that's as relevant to pathophysiology, for instance. Um, and then going down the line and, and getting angry when the answers aren't there, especially with, with trivial things, is, is a bad way to do it. You know, one key thing I learned at the Surgeons' Educators course, I mean, I learned many things there, but uh, if you're going to ask a question, you got to give enough time for the response. We all think we give plenty of time, but on average, we're giving like a half second response time. And so what I learned is that you're supposed to, in your head, hum the happy birthday song. And by the time you get to the end, you've given them a good four or five seconds to put an answer together. Uh, and you'd be shocked at how quickly we, we expect the answer. But uh, I think pimping is good. It, it's, a, it's a way to keep people engaged and, and probe their knowledge and, and prompt them to learn more. Uh, the problem with pimping is that many uh, of the faculty are a little scared to do it now because if you're asking a question the student doesn't know and they get the impression that you're upset, by definition in the OR especially, you're in a public environment and that starts to become, well, is that... Is that public embarrassment? Uh, is that humiliation? And those are types of mistreatment that are very gray. And uh, the pendulum sometimes swings too far to where, you know, I've heard of rotations uh, where, where, you know, the attendings say off the bat, we're, we're not supposed to pimp you because it's too stressful and we don't want to mistreat you. And that's an absolute disservice. Yeah. And it's not true whatsoever. They're supposed to pimp. They're just supposed to do it in a sensible manner. One thing I think you start to realize as a medical student when you're on these clerkships and you're starting to get quote-unquote pimped is that there's not always a right or wrong answer, that there's gray in medicine. And so in the first two years and even probably through your third year, you think there's a right and a wrong answer because that's how you're tested and that's what you see on most of your courses. And then you provide an answer that's what you read and you provide it with a different answer and you're told that your answer is not necessarily the answer that the person pimping you was looking for. And then you ultimately go read and you realize that there's actually literature on both sides and you start to pick up on the fact that medicine is not just a right or wrong answer, that it can be practice patterns, it can be regional, uh, that evidence can weigh both sides to a degree. Uh, That can be one way that you're exposed to that is through pimping. Uh, That was at least my experience. I would give a plug for pimping. I think it's the same thing. Somebody's giving you like part of their attention. Almost never is it malicious. I understand that occasionally there are some sketchy situations, but it's always somebody trying to give you knowledge. And the thing about pimping is it's like it's in the moment. We have this patient. We see this pathology. We're in the operating room. We're holding this mass that looks like this. You know, and sometimes you don't know the answer. And honestly, that's kind of okay. Like, it's your job to read, but it's not your job to know everything ever about every single specialty. So I would say, you know, take it with some 
basically gratitude. The other question I wanted to ask you, though, is what do you think the top three pimping questions or some kind of categories of pimping questions are for third year medical students? Wow. Well, you know, that could be all over the place. It depends on what team you're on. Uh, you know, I think the gallbladder is an easy target. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my Close favorite. triangle. Close triangle, so you know you go straight to anatomy, and, and that that should be pretty straightforward, easy points. But uh, that said, I like to ask just in general, what problems can a gallstone cause? Mm. And you know, we'll see how far down the ladder. If they're starting to name Maritzi syndrome or gallstone alias, and why that's a misnomer, then they're they're doing a darn good job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hernias again, that's bread and butter general surgery. Uh, I like to sort of consider it as a critical care thinking exercise, but. But why would a mesh under the fascia as opposed to on the fascia be better? And I start nerding out and talking about uh, Pascal's hydrostatic principle and, and you know force application as well as infection risk. That's a hint to you listeners out there as the two principles as to why it underlays better. Reasons <laughs> to fix hernias. Uh, why, why do we do it in the first place? Those are, those are common, I think, uh, bread and butter pimping type questions. Now, we reached out to some medical students and asked them what questions they had. And so we had some great responses. The first one is, and I don't, there's probably not a right answer to this, but when in the year should a person who's interested in surgery do their surgical clerkship rotation? Or does it matter? Well, I'd say first and foremost, it, you, can, you can be a surgeon having rotated through surgery in any of the blocks. I've had them go from block one to block six. Uh, I would, uh, for strategy purposes, I would advise ideally not your very first block. You can get your clinical feet under you at least and, and kind of learn how a hospital functions and you'll probably perform better. Uh, many people argue it's better to do after uh, HAC, which is hospitalized adult care, which is internal medicine at our, at our hospital or our medical school. Um, and, and that really is mostly under the argument that the shelf exam for surgery does have a lot of medicine-type questions, and if you've already done internal medicine, you're, you're better <laughs> equipped to do well on the shelf. Although, you know, there have been studies showing that's not entirely true. Um, you know, I, I think we see most people interested in general surgery pick the third, fourth, or fifth block. So if they had a little bit of experience, sometimes they've, they've had the medicine already. Uh, and and I, I would argue we definitely see uh, an increase in performance, uh, you know, by the mid-blocks and beyond. Now, this is a question that is a very hot topic of discussion these days and important. One of our medical students asked, what are some ways to manage stress and avoid burnout during the third year? And really, I'll just expand to say in medicine in general, because it doesn't just stop once medical school is over. Well, that's a, it's a topic that's growing increasingly popular, and I think for good reason. I mean, we're, we're having an increased shortage of, of providers, and, and we're also recognizing uh, the stresses of our job in a more global aspect. You know, first of all, be aware that there's resources abound. Um, here at the, the Colorado School of Medicine, we, we have a resilience council. Uh, they give lectures and they can be seen. Uh, we have you know, mental health providers as well. So, so knowing what resources are there, and, and it's, you, know, you have to understand too, it's anonymous, it's, it's okay to do, it doesn't show up on your record. I think a good balance of exercise and rest, and it does seem like you never have the time to exercise, but one of your podcast presenters I know is, is an avid runner. <laughs> he finds the time. I only chase things or run when I'm chased. But, you know, getting adequate rest is important. And then, you know, debrief when and, and where applicable. If you had a tough encounter or you had a patient with a bad outcome, it's not only a, a natural human response, but it's actually advisable to maybe talk about it and see how your senior resident or your attending's handling it. And, and I think it can go a long way with helping you find peace with what's going on. 
So I actually started running in medical school partly as an outlet. Uh, and I would advocate not just running, I think running's great, but whatever you find enjoyable. It doesn't have to be uh, something that's incredibly arduous, even if it's something uh, that's not ex exercise at all, uh, whether that's something like going to local festivals or art museums, things like that. Something completely away from medicine, I think is helpful. And I think relying on your family a lot. I think in undergraduate, you try and uh, distinguish yourself from your family. You want to become independent. And then some of that can carry over into medical school. And I think you have to kind of flip it because medical school is totally different from a stress level from undergraduate. And so if you can then not necessarily reincorporate, but for lack of a better term, uh, reestablish yourself with your parents or siblings or close friends, that can be hugely helpful. So the more support system you have, the more you're able to rely on other people. And if you can find some outlets, I think that's great. Ellie, any other thoughts? No, I would just, based on what you both just said, say, especially if you are going through a difficult situation or you have a patient who's died or a clinical situation that's been really difficult, a lot of your people who you've been going to medical school with for the past three years are also starting to go through this probably for the first time um, as a provider. Maybe you've had experiences with family members before, but you're starting to go through this for the first time as a provider. So I think talking to your friends who've been on the clerkships before or anybody can be a great outlet. Just having a support system, whoever that is, I think is very important. You know, you should be reading and you should be studying and you feel like you have a thousand things going on at one time, but you do need to make time for yourself during each week. Yes, we're all humans, believe it or not. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why outside of the hospital sources is good too is because, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon. If you take a wide step back, medical students work their butts off to get where they are. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly in the clinical world, at the absolute very bottom of the totem pole, yeah. where there's this perception where they're like worthless little dangerous people that everybody has to keep an eye on. And that doesn't help at all. So yes, when you talk to your friends who are not in the medical field or your family who's so proud of you where you are, you kind of get reminded like, oh yeah, I know a ton and I'm about to go do awesome things. Um, you should be getting that feeling out there on the wards anyway, but it does help to have some people outside of medicine reminding you like what you're doing is hard, but it's awesome. We have another great question from one of our medical student listeners, Allie, no relation. How do you find a balance between uh, rotations and studying for the shelf exams and step two? All, a pretty good question in the setting of what you were talking about where there's a lot of medicine on the surgery shelf. And sometimes you're like, really? Why am I answering this question on a surgical shelf? So how do you recommend people balance all of these things? Well, first you got to acknowledge there's a major difference the, the minute you turn into an MS3. Uh, you're not getting routine tests. You're not getting weekly quizzes. you got one test at the end of the block. And whereas that's a huge change and you may not like the adjustment that it takes to prepare for that, that's how it is the rest of your career. You're going to get one test a year as a resident no matter what field you're in. And then you're going to get one giant test that's going to stamp you as qualified or not to go into your profession. So you have to now take it upon yourself while you're sort of doing a pseudo-internship, actual work studies type work, you got to set a schedule and you got to stick to it. Uh, daily incremental studies is a great way, you know, try to do five questions a night or try to read 10 pages a night uh, are some pieces of good advice. I'll tell you right now, I didn't really follow it to a T, um, but you really can't cram for these types of tests. Mm -hmm. You want to study in your downtime, and even in the wild world of what we do, there's some downtime between uh, room turnovers and waiting for various things. 
it used to be a pretty hefty book that barely fit in the med student white coat that I would carry around. But now uh, with our smartphones, there's so many resources you mm-hmm. can be learning, learning things and looking things up. But uh, just recognize there's a big difference. And as much as you may not like having to adjust to it, that's how it's going to be the rest of your careers. So uh, you got to set your own schedules and stick to it and learn the way you, do, you, you learn best. When it comes to the actual shelf, uh, the shelf uh, for surgery is, is a bit tricky. We adopted it about four years ago by student request. Uh, and I've struggled as a relatively new clerkship director to figure out best ways to study. But thankfully, the, the Association of Surgical Education and the Clerkship Directors Committee, uh, I've learned quite a bit. We've actually all gone to the NBME and asked them to listen to us on how they craft the shelf. And it's a slow process, but to their credit, they're absolutely listening. And I, I was just in Philadelphia last December giving them feedback on how to make it a better test. But uh, you got to be ready. I think the, the practice questions are great. Uh, medicine questions are good to prepare, um, particularly organ-based ones like liver, kidney, GI. Um, and, and don't worry if you're listening and you're about to do surgery uh, here at CU. I'm, I'm going to give you a few other slides worth of uh, study tips uh, at orientation. Just to follow up on that question, though, I think our reader or listener um, asked about step two as well. My personal experience was that I gave a dedicated several weeks of studying for step two. I think that the way that my third year was, I had medicine and surgery last. And so I was well prepared to study for not a ton of time because most of the meat of step two, the actual written step two, is medicine and surgery. And so having just taken those shelves, I felt like I didn't have to study quite as much as I would have if I had taken both of those rotations at the beginning of the year. So I think you're kind of studying for step two throughout the course of your third year. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I I failed to acknowledge or address that aspect of the question, but you're absolutely right. The one advantage of the shelf is that they are in the same vein as the actual step two question. So if all your blocks have USMLE shelves or NBME shelves, I should say, then then you're, you know, use the same study tactics. But, uh, you know, historically it was take two months to study for step one, take two weeks to study for step two, and bring two number two pencils. Uh, That shows you how old I am because they're now all computer-based. But, you know, have a little time, especially if you need it based on a suboptimal step one score to study for step two. But it's not something that should prioritize each block. You're there to learn what you're there to learn on the block. So we had talked about this on the podcast previously, and I shared my opinions. Uh, But when it comes to doing away rotations, either people coming to our institution and doing them or our students going elsewhere, what are some tips you give to students or advice you give to students on picking away rotations or choosing whether to do them or not? Well, it's a pretty broad uh, array of options. But if you have a program that you're particularly interested in, away rotation makes great sense. You can learn more about the program. And in a, in a manner of speaking, you're doing a month-long interview. You're getting to know the residents there. If they really like your performance uh, and they're going to get to know you, not just are you a hard worker, are you a good test taker, uh, but you know all the other aspects that make you a good potential resident, then they're going to highly advocate for you with an absolute strong voice that, that really means a lot more than, you know, but they're AOA. Oh, they have two publications. No, this person's awesome. We spent a week with, or a month with them and, and love them. Um, on a similar vein, though, if, if you show up and kind of do a half job, it's not going to bode well for you because you've revealed your cards. Away rotations sometimes cost extra money, and for those listeners with family, that's not really a feasible option. They're not necessary. 
I was fortunate to do an interesting away rotation in my medical school on a GI service, even though I no wanted to do surgery. And, and the GI attending, who was really cool, was, was kind enough to write me a letter of recommendation. And I, and I think that goes away, uh, a longer way in, in a sense, because they have no dog in that race. They're just saying sincerely what they thought about me. But that's not really mandatory whatsoever. That's not the norm. It's not an expectation. It's not a reason to go through the effort of doing an away rotation. They, they can be good, but they're not mandatory at all. And I think they're mostly beneficial if you're really trying to learn more about a program or if you're really very interested in a specific program. So a medical student comes to you, and this is very similar to experience I had as a medical student. They come to you and they say, you know, I've had an amazing experience on surgery. I think it would be a great career for me, but I'm worried about the technical skills. or I'm worried that I'm the right fit. What do you tell someone who's considering a career in surgery where they're just unsure either about their ability to develop the skills necessary or they're fit in the, in the uh, general surgical culture? You know, my temptation is to recite the words of Mr. Miyagi, karate yes here, karate no here. Karate, so-so, squish just like grape. Uh, that's a bit uh, older of a movie. I'm talking about the original Karate Kid, not a Jackie Chan one. But, you know, is surgery right for me? There's an interesting website on the College of Surgeons. Uh, it's facs.org, you know, is surgery right for me? Uh, it speaks to some of the attributes and some of the demands of what we do. But, you know, you got to understand, even though the lifestyle is getting better, the workload is still intense. But I would say it's commensurate with the absolute impact you have on patients which is commensurate with the absolute reward of doing what we do. So there's going to be supreme satisfaction and enjoyment, but you have to have the work ethic. You have to enjoy what you're doing. You know, little personal attributes, it helps if you don't get hangry easily because there are going to be periods of time where you don't necessarily eat lunch. Uh, and the training is a lot longer. It's a little weird to see either college buddies 10, 10 years into their career and you're still a trainee or med student graduate buddies that are attendings and you're still, you know, an R4 uh, making resident salary, but there's a reason it takes longer to do what we do, uh, and I think it can be a very enjoyable experience still because you're you're at least getting paid as opposed to taking out loans as a med student, and you, you're learning your craft and making a difference every day. You got to have the dedication and work ethic, though. Um, you know, it was a bit apprehensive for me thinking like this is this is the hardcore. You know, everybody's mean and just you know overworked. It's absolutely not the case. Uh, it's work hard, play hard, and it's really fun. In the end, I think the payoff is is intense. Uh, and here, it seems that we have some of the highest job satisfaction scores of what we do here, uh, if I'm not mistaken, surgeons. Cool. I vividly remember getting the phone call from my mom because she hadn't heard from me in a few weeks because I was <laughs> near the end of the surgical clerkship and she was asking me how things were going. And I said, I'm uh, about to finish surgical clerkship. It's been amazing. And I told everyone I would never do surgery. That's all I knew. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to do surgery. And she was like, well, how, what, made, what made you change your mind? And I said, well, I've been getting up at 4, 4.30 in the morning every day this week. And I come home, you know, picking my job off the ground, just amazed and having an amazing time. So I didn't really have a great way to, to verbalize why I liked it. But I just knew that it was so much more enjoyable than anything I had done to that point. So it was the obvious answer. I think if, if, if you've gone to that idea, you can come up with the words later when it comes to letter recommendations or speaking to faculty and whatnot. I kind of tell people, like, just think of it that, like, if this is the most fun you're having up until now, do it, and the rest of the stuff works out on its own. Yeah. If you're happy coming in early and leaving late, then you should think about it. Yeah. And, and even though what we're describing sounds like long hours, the time flies when you're having fun. It so. does. Yeah. All right. Last question. We really appreciate all your time. You have a unique job being a clerkship director. What does that job entail and what's it like and what does it mean to you uh, having a role in medical students' uh, education? 
you know, it means a lot to me. First of all, I greatly enjoy sharing what I know uh, and helping prepare future colleagues. And that goes beyond just those interested in surgery. I, I love helping the, the, I mean, the fact is that most, most students aren't going to go into surgery, but I love sharing what I know so that they can do better for their patients and interact well with surgeons. Uh, they can understand how our brains work and, and, and make our jobs easier uh, by streamlining things. Uh, I get to keep up with uh, the evolution of education. It is rapidly evolving and changing. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of educational uh, concepts with with associated abbreviations that at first just seemed like alphabet soup when I started going to the school of medicine meetings. But I'm picking up on it here and there, and, and you know, much of it's philosophical, which is kind of on the other end of the spectrum of of the concrete things that we can often put our hands on and fix. But it's constant learning, and I enjoy it. Some of the challenges are, you know seemingly having to keep uh, faculty or residents in line, maybe navigating the balance of, of our demanding workloads with the importance of making sure the educational experience is great for the trainees. But the, the most rewarding part is, is the mentorship. And I have three older brothers, and, and in a sense, I feel like I had my own personal uh, academic advisors in many ways and life coaches and, and brothers. But seeing that I was the youngest, I never had anything to pass this along to. And, and maybe this is satisfying that, that subconscious urge has always been there to, to share what I know along to others. Well, we greatly appreciate you joining us today, and we also greatly appreciate the mentorship and the guidance that you provide for the medical students here. Um, my mentor in medical school was the clerkship director for our surgery rotation, and I know from knowing him well, that is a huge job. Like, it is a lot of work, and you influence a ton of people. So thank you for that. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your time, Dr. Mentor.